let's say they have back issues and they complain of those they, mm. they complain about those back issues and they have very long femurs and then I show them the squat pattern they do the squat pattern and it looks okay but they're back squatting all the time it's like well okay it's going to make them pitch forward like crazy and so that's going to stress out their lower back a lot more than the average person even if it doesn't injure them it's still putting more loading on it for for the weekly volume so maybe I change it up and make them do more of a priority toward front squats for their weekly volume or for their yearly volume, and I don't back squat with them as much. We're still getting the, the fundamental pattern in, but it's a variation that's more friendly to their leverages, their body. What is up, my friend, and welcome to the Dango Show. I'm your host, Dango, coach to high-performing entrepreneurs and professionals. And what we do at the Dango Show is tease out the best practices of the highest-performing entrepreneurs in the world while sharing cutting-edge, evidence-based information to help you become healthier and wealthier. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Click that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so every time one of my episodes goes live, you'll be the first to know. What is up and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we have my friend and Uber fitness coach, Lee Boyce. He is featured on, he's basically featured on every single major publication when it comes to fitness. He's been on Men's Health, Women's Health, Shape Magazine, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's, he's literally been on them all and for good reason. He has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to training the body. And one thing I want to point out in this particular episode is that, uh, you know, don't get overwhelmed with the, with the terms that we use. Um, it does get somewhat technical, uh, inside of the podcast episode, but I promise you that we do bring things down to kind of like a, a level where kind of like the average person can understand the things that we're talking about. And I'm very excited because, uh, he talks about something that not a lot of people are are educating others of in the fitness industry, which is uh, the types of workouts that you should do for all the different body types that are out there. Uh, some people have, or actually everyone has different leverages and different uh, kind of like measurements to their own bodies. And we talk specifically about what uh, what to look out for, how people should train for these different leverages, and the things that he looks out for when he's training a new client. We talk about diets. We talk about intermittent fasting, keto, and all that kind of stuff. Talk a little bit of shit about that, just just to give you a heads up. And uh, and yeah, we talk about uh, pretty much like everything training, diet, and nutrition related. Uh, I love Lee's uh, philosophy, especially when it comes to the simplicity of uh, his nutrition philosophy. And just in general, Lee as a person is high integrity. He uh, he is obviously very knowledgeable. And uh, and yeah, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Now, if you are coming back to this episode, uh, one thing I just want to ask you is that if you're coming back, uh, please you know do me a solid and leave a five star review on uh, whatever place that you look or listen to these podcasts. I really super appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it's just going to help me push this out. I want to be. Uh, I want to get this podcast out to be the number one in self-development and everything that I put out there is developed in order to make you a better human being. So if you are down for that and you like the episodes that you're listening to, please leave a five-star review. I would love you very much. So without further ado, here is the episode I have with Lee Boyce. Hey, what's up? So I have my friend Lee Boyce on the podcast and Lee uh, Lee is prolific. Uh, he has been featured on almost every single fitness magazine known to man, men's health, uh, men's journal shape, uh, even vice, even the wall street journal, Arnold Schwarzenegger, T nation, uh, almost every single fitness publication that we can ever think of Lee has been published on. And it's, uh, because of his incredible intellect and knowledge when it comes to training, especially when it comes to uh, coaching. And uh, Lee, I just want to say thanks a lot for coming on this podcast. Really appreciate uh, you coming on, my friend. Thanks for having me. I'm actually really excited to be here. I look forward to this. Yeah, man. So uh, we've actually gone to know each other for the past a couple of months. Um, one of your clients, uh, actually, one of your clients uh, came up to me, we intro each other. And then he's, he's like, I train with Lee. And I was just like, I am a huge fan of Lee. Um, I've seen this, I've actually seen his articles for, I think before that we're in 2022 right now, I've seen it for the past like five to seven years, um, in various, uh, 
in various kind of like magazine publications and also online magazines. And, um, and yeah, man, I've been a fan of yours for, for a very long time. And I just, I'm not going to go like fanboy out or anything like that right now because, you know, we're friends and shit, so. but, but I really do respect like your training acumen and, uh, also your philosophy as well. Uh, one of the things I was wondering is like, how exactly did you get into coaching in the first place? Um, well, first, thanks for all those uh, kind words. Um, as far as getting into coaching, it was sort of an organic, uh, I'll, call, I'll call it an organic thing where like, you know, going right back to high school, you know, you're, you're in shape, you're athletic, you're, you're playing sports, you're doing all that stuff um, really heavily into that side of the, uh, of the, the world, the athletic world. And then um, toward the end of high school, I realized that I uh, could take um, a kinesiology class uh, as a senior. And I was like, well, okay, like exercise science, that's cool. So I took it and uh, I liked it so much that in my final year of school, I took it again, even though I did really well in it the first time. And uh, I was going to a different school for that final year. So uh, it was a little bit of a different approach and a couple new things that I learned all over. And um, yeah, it was uh, I did well in that one again. So then I took that to, to university. I ran track in university as well. And uh, the rest sort of went down like that. While I was still in school, I got a uh, my first job as a personal trainer at a commercial gym. And uh, yeah, the rest kind of was history. I just I st stuck with the industry. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And uh, it's funny because actually, if I if I go back to those high school uh, examples, one thing that really put it over the edge for me as well that gave me that planted the seed even more so before I even took those kinesiology classes was uh, I had a good friend who he was um, uh, he was a hockey guy. He liked playing. He played hockey and, and he was looking for some off season uh, like he wanted to do better in the off season. So he signed up with a personal trainer. We we're like 16 years old. And he was like, yeah, come join for one of my sessions. And man, when I went to that session, I was so impressed. I was so blown away by the the coach, number one, and how how awesome he was and how cool he seemed and so on. And I was like, man, this job in the gym, it seems like it's so cool. And um, yeah, that was one of the things that was definitely um, a seed planter for, for kicking off my interest in that industry. And I think that like uh, under the radar, that was a major catalyst. And then, you know, fast forward to taking those kinesiology classes, doing university, all that stuff, the, the running track, and then finally getting a job as a personal trainer. Like it, it definitely was in some way uh, spurred on from that, uh, that moment back in the 11th grade. Nice. And then uh, what was your first job as a personal trainer? Who was it uh, with? It was a company called Extreme Fitness, which was around up oh. until maybe 10 years ago now. And uh, yeah, yeah, so that was the, I was there for four years and they were they were the they were one of the titans for a short while. And then they sort of mm. fell off. They they uh, they were one of the bigger gyms out in Toronto or gym chains. And then they got uh, they got bought out by what is the biggest gym chain right now, which is Good Life. Uh, which one, which, uh, extreme fitness were you at? I was the one downtown at Richmond and John. So that is now a good life okay. as well, but it's close to the movie theater and stuff. And that was before I was into movies. So I would have taken so many breaks and gone over to theater, check a check out a flick, but, uh, I wasn't into it yet. <laughs> yeah. You're talking to two Toronto boys right now. And, uh, we're just reminiscing on the old, good old times. And, uh, when you're going to that story, it reminded me of, uh, my first influence when I got into fitness, which was, it was my gym teacher. Um, he just made fitness and uh, physical activity just so fun. It made me realize uh, kind of like, you know, how much fun I could have in my own body, even though I was like, he made us like do all these like crazy runs and whatever it is. But that was kind of like my first uh, example of how much fitness can have an impact on one's life. And, uh, and I'm glad that you were able to get that example because, you know, you are where you are right now. Now, when you are training a client, uh, you know, we kind of work with uh, maybe similar clients. I don't really work with high level athletes, you know, guys who are like uh, professional athletes or anything like that. I work with a lot of gem pop uh, entrepreneurs, guys who just want to like lose the belly, guys who want to uh, get more energy and develop like, you know, higher performance inside their lives and their businesses. So what are kind of like the first things that you look at when you're dealing with like, say, an average uh, client who's just who's just coming to you for some help? Yeah, a lot of the clients that I have are also general population for the most part. Um, and uh, for that reason, I think that my approach kind of changed over the course of the last 15 years doing this, whereas before I was pretty transfixed on, uh, you know, having some kind of an athlete standard that I would want 
even non-athletic people or, or people who are general population who didn't have those kind of goals to strive for. And, mm. you know, it's almost like you're making goals for them yourself, even though they've told you what their goals are. And so uh, you think that, okay, well, you know, two times bodyweight deadlift or certain strength standards that are permeating the industry or, you know, even if there's no strength standards involved, here are some very, very athletic exercises that take you and set you apart from other trainers who are just doing regular squats and regular presses. And so uh, I was very, very much geared towards doing that and really, really, uh, I guess, shoehorning them into that world. And Mm -hmm. today I realized that First of all, a lot of that stuff is less important to them and more important to us. And so that's a big part of things that uh, influences the way that I train people now. But second of all, you know, like especially since personally I've gotten different injuries over the years and you spend a lot of time where, you know, you don't have the mojo sometimes and other times you do. And, you know, you've been uh, I've spent time where I was heavier. I've spent time where I've cut down. I've been lighter and I've changed nutrition wise and um, priorities change and all these kinds of things where life sort of uh, it, it changes on you. And I have to realize that that's the same, if not more so for clients who don't spend Mm -hmm. most of their time in a fitness oriented situation or circumstance. So the main thing that I look at first now is just quality of movement. So I really look at like how well and how mobile they are, um, what kinds of things can help them. And of course, what areas of their body are going to be weak that need to be strengthened by way of oftentimes just improving movement quality. So Mm. It doesn't take too much for a lot of people to get into better shape when the baseline is sort of there, when it's when it starts with the, the, the quality of movement, making sure that they can they can, you know, raise their arm over their head without pain or, you know, go through a full hip mobility circle or whatever it is that these are the things that they need to be able to do. And it kind of it, it doesn't it excludes absolutely nobody from being responsible for being able to do these things, right? So instead of saying two times bodyweight deadlift or you must hit a one and a half bodyweight squat or bench your body, whatever it is, those aren't those are very negotiable. The things that are non-negotiable mm-hmm. are the things where it's like you must be able to move well and then get stronger while moving well. So those are my new non-negotiables, and I think that it's. Uh, it's harder to exclude people from those standards, which is where I like to start with people. Yeah. And it's, uh, I feel like we create these arbitrary standards because of Jim bro type speak, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot, you know, you're on Instagram obviously. And, um, a lot of times like, uh, you would get these seemingly almost like elite people creating these arbitrary standards of what the average person should be able to accomplish when the reality is, is that, a lot of people don't give a fuck about that stuff. Like they don't care. They just want to be healthy. They just want to move better. They want to move without pain. What do you feel are the common areas of uh, movement quality or lack of movement quality when you're dealing with, uh, say, average client? Um, yeah. So first of all, to the point that you were just making there, it's like, yeah, a lot of people yeah. do not care about that. And if they could have, yeah. uh, you know, a special pill or something like that that would make them have the body that performs and feels as great you know look good feel good are the goals that most people have and you know as vain as that might sound for a lot of people it's the truth and we have to get over ourselves as trainers we have to get over ourselves as purists and we have to realize that this is the truth and honestly even my goals are something along those lines personally so i can't even like i can't even hate (laughs) um so having said that as far as people who are um you know they're they're getting into the gym and they're training and that they want to, you know, get somewhere with their goals. The, the things that I like to look at first and foremost are, again, movement quality. Uh, those two main ball and socket joints, to answer your question, are, are the two areas that are sort of my priority. So the shoulder joint and the hip joint. Mm. There's so much stuff mm. that sort of either links to or comes from dysfunction of those joints. And so if we can sort of uh, grab the bull by the horns, so to speak, and uh, do things that are going to mobilize those two areas, even if it means we have to mobilize something else or strengthen something else to get mobility at those two areas, then that's going to be our best course of action in my books. So, uh, yeah, the shoulder joint and the hip joint, um, they're, they're just, there's so many different drills, so many different strength training exercises, so many different uh, just exercise and movements that are contingent on their good quality movement patterning. And so that's where I like to start. All right. Um, I know there's like a lot of exercises to choose from a lot of exercises to use as like assessment tools. 
I, I don't want to consolidate it down to like, this is the one thing that you got to do. Uh, but if there, if, you know, for anyone listening, if there's like a general assessment uh, tool or exercise that they could do on themselves for, say, shoulder mobility and hip mobility, which ones would you recommend? Um, well, my, my assessment protocol, I guess, for clients that are just starting out with me, a lot of people think that it's something that's a lot bigger than it really is, some sort of like more structured <laughs> thing than it really is. And again, mm. I think that the years behind my uh, time doing this has, is what has changed my approach to something that's so incredibly simplistic. I sort of work from, I work backwards kind of. So I'll start with um, some basic typical mobility drills that I know and trust, like a Spider-Man walk, for example. I think that's such an all-encompassing movement pattern. And um, that's probably part of my answer to you as well as in terms of what you've asked. Mm -hmm. But a Spider-Man walk exercise or a high knee walk or a cradle walk. And then from those movements, it gives me a good picture as to what their load-bearing joints are capable of achieving range of motion wise, as, as well as when I give them the cues to try to achieve them and uh, to do the right way of uh, performing them. If they can't, well, it tells me where they're wound up. Okay, your T-spine's not rotating that well. Your shoulder mobility kind of sucks here. Your hip mobility is pretty wound up as well. Um, you have poor dorsiflexion or you have great of all the above, right? So those movements, it's nothing new or fancy or some kind of diagnostic. It's just a regular mobility drill. But with a trained eye, you can really tell a lot from those things. Um, and then from there, I usually like to just go into basic or modified or variations of primal movement patterns. So your squat pattern, your hinge pattern, your overhead pressing pattern, um, you know, is there pain? Can you achieve the range of motion? What's the quality of the reps that they are? What do they look like? Um, and it gives me a good idea in terms of what their body proportions and leverages look like as well when they're doing these movements and what go-to variations I might start relying upon to give them the best results with the least amount of pain or injury risk. So um, a good example would be if I have a client who you know, they complain of knee issues or something like that. And I look at them, I see they've got very long femurs and they might have decent mobility, um, but they've been cranking away. Or so let's say that, but let's say they have back issues and they complain of those, they, mm -hmm. they complain about those back issues and they have very long femurs. And then I show them the squat pattern. They do the squat pattern and it looks okay, but they're back squatting all the time. It's like, well, okay, it's going to make them pitch forward like crazy. And so that's going to stress out their lower back a lot more than the average person. Even if it doesn't injure them, it's still putting more loading on it for the, for the weekly volume. So maybe I change it up and make them do more of a priority toward front squats for their weekly volume or for their yearly volume. And I don't back squat with them as much. We're still getting the, the fundamental pattern in, but it's a variation that's more friendly to their leverages, their body. So mm -hmm. things like that. And I'll look at like all their different patterns first in that first session, you know, or those first couple of sessions, overhead press, oh, there's pain here, they've got poor mobility, they can't achieve the technique, maybe we switch to a landmine for the time being, maybe we do a single dumbbell with a half kneeling stance, things like that are the way that I like to go about uh, doing things. And then as we get stronger, as we get better, as we get more mobile, as we do more things to troubleshoot the issues, we progress ourselves toward the point where they've earned the, the ability to use those barbells or do the conventional versions of these lifts. So it's got to be individualized. And I think that taking um, an eye that is, is sort of geared toward troubleshooting and keeping things individual so that it's a real personal aspect to personal training, that's what's going to – it doesn't rest necessarily require any sort of crazy, crazy protocol or some really diagnostic medical, almost clinician type of level assessment protocol if we're just trying to get somebody in shape and do it safely. Simple as that. Mm. I love that. And uh, I want to dive in upon uh, the the aspect of body type when it comes to lifting. I don't think a lot of people pay attention enough to this because they all think, okay, so squat, deadlift, uh, bench press, these are just in whatever basic exercise there are, these are like the ones that I should be doing. But they don't realize that different body types have different leverages and they correspond differently to certain types of exercise. So uh, can you shine a light on, on what you realize like training clients and how different body types respond to different types of stimuluses? Yeah. So as far as um, like what I mentioned about the squat is very true in terms of like, okay, if you have a longer femur, for example, or long legs and a short torso, there's going to be different geometry that you're going to have to assume to do a big movement pattern like a squat compared to somebody who has the opposite dimensions. If you're very, very tall versus somebody who's very short, imagine like, and you know, when we think about tall people, we might think about a guy 6'3 or something like that. 
And then we think about a shorter person, we might think about a guy five, six or something like that. And it's like, okay, well, that's a deviation that's noteworthy. But what if we take things to a more extreme? Think of guys in the NBA who are 6'11". And you think about somebody who's like a jockey or something like that, who's like five foot one, right? These kinds of people, they still need the same principles of training so that they can get in shape and be healthy and strong. But at the same time, we have to have an individualized approach so that we respect those body types. If you think about having each of those people squat their body weight equivalent for 10 repetitions, you know, we think that that means that they're doing the same amount of work and that the, the, the mm. implications of the program are the same. Well, they're absolutely not. You know, that 611 guy is going to be doing so much more work when you think of the actual definition of the term force times distance because of how far he has to go up and down. What's that going to mean when you compound that into multiple sets of an exercise, when you compound that across the whole hour and a half or whatever for a workout, when you compound that across an entire week's worth of training sessions, and then a year's worth of training, there's a lot more stress in certain load-bearing joints, it's more demand on certain mobility of load-bearing joints, et cetera, et cetera. Um, lower back's going to take a whole lot of stress for those squats and deadlifts, you name it. So that's something that needs to be considered a whole lot more than it is. And it's a reason why the, the, on Instagram there, I make that Tuesday, Tall Guy Tuesday post every week, because it brings attention to differences in anthropometry and variations in skeletal anatomy. And uh, in terms of, you know, even a person's size width wise, and this is trunk volume wise and all mm -hmm. that, uh, if you're just big all over. So those kinds of things, I think, can be very vital. And they're not really discussed too much in the industry that I've seen. And so bringing attention to it is very important because there are a lot more people than we think that fall under those categories where, you know, they might not even be tall for tall guy Tuesday. Maybe they're 5'11", but they've got the wingspan of somebody who's six foot six, right? And then all of a sudden you have a huge range of motion. You've got to travel and bench press. You're wondering why your shoulders hurt, et cetera. You're wondering why your overhead press isn't as strong as other lifts. Well, tell you why, because of that work explanation that I talked about, you know? And so looking at things from a perspective that takes not only biomechanics, but actually anatomy into consideration, I think can go a very long way. Um, if you look at elite sports, you start seeing that there's more um, of a homogeneous mixture of people at the elite levels of the elite um, in terms of body types. You can usually tell what body looks like a professional swimmer. You can usually tell what body looks like a professional 200 or 400 meter sprinter. You can usually tell what body looks like an, uh, a world-class gymnast etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh, these are the things if we think about that in terms of the sport and then we think about things in terms of the weight room is there an ideal body type for that when we're when weight training is our sport when weights is our thing and we don't play a sport but all we do is train why wouldn't there be certain lifts that are going to be pandering more to us than other lifts and that's mm. what uh, i like to investigate and what i like to talk about and discuss and shed light on yeah it reminds me of uh kind of like a this is a basic example, but it reminds me of I think uh, one of the world record deadlift uh, holders. I think it's uh, I think it's Steffi Cohen, but I'm not sure. Um, she has incredibly. She actually has a long wingspan. Yeah, and she has a short body. Yeah. So combined with these two things together, that's why she's been able to break the world record. Uh, but it has obviously it has something to do with how strong she is, but it has a lot to do with her leverages. Yeah, and even for like a even for like a personal trainer to say uh, to throw like a bench press on someone who has a long wingspan, even though they may have like a short body, uh, that that is actually going to cause a little bit more shoulder problems as opposed to uh, someone who has shorter arms. Like someone who actually say has a bet the bench press uh, world record. A lot of them talk about like technique. When you you look at their bodies, like they have short T Rex arms, you know, to go along with their with their actual bodies themselves. So. One of the things that comes to mind right now is like, okay, so people never measure themselves in this way. How do we get people to become aware of their own leverages, of how long their arms are, how long their femurs are, uh, so they can start uh, customizing their lifting uh, routine towards that? Yeah, so uh, the, it just makes me think about the Vitruvian Man by Da Vinci when you start thinking mm. about uh, the, that anatomical stuff. An, an anatomical yeah. position where the palms are facing forward and you're standing something like this and uh, everything's fitting into that circle, into that sphere. And so um, in that, it's basically everything is sort of proportionate to everything else. And that's the kind of quotes ideal. 
Um, so the arm length is so the wingspan is about the same as your height and your arms, mm-hmm. sorry, and your torso is half of your body's height and your legs are the other half and so on. Right. So going based off of something like that is a good, I mean, I mean, I won't say it's good, but it's, it's a useful starting point to think about whether or not you might fall into a category where you have a long this or short that. So if you have a longer torso, usually it's going to be more than half of your height, you know, from your head all the way down to your hip bone. If you've got longer legs, they're usually going to be more than half of your height. And, you know, you see that quite often, too. Um, If your wingspan noticeably exceeds what your height is in in inches, then you've got long arms, technically speaking. Now, of course, there's going to be a little bit of variation, and you could even break things down even further by looking at your femur length relative to your chin length and so on, right? But not only in straight up measurement, but also in watching you perform exercises, watching an individual perform exercises. And this can go out to trainers who are listening in too, is that like when you have a trained eye to look at what geometry starts to appear like when they're doing the squat pattern, when they're doing the bench pattern, when they're doing the deadlift pattern, it usually tells you a lot when you compare that to somebody who's more built for deadlifting, who has very strong deadlifts and so on, right? So you use the mm-hmm. Cohen example, and you have somebody who's got long arms. She also likes to use a sumo stance, if I'm not mistaken. So mm-hmm. she has less distance that the bar is going to travel from bottom to top in order for her to get uh, get a lockout position, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, partially st- strategic for deadlifting excellence in powerlifting meets, but also, you know, you have a good foundation of having the body type that's really conducive to doing really well in this sport, period. Right. You're not going to find too many Olympic lifters who have body proportions like mine. Right. Very long arms, a short torso, very long legs, because when I have to catch that clean or catch a snatch, it's a huge boom, a big whoosh that you have to. Now, all that's so much distance. Yeah, it's a lot of distance. Right. And so you might find lifters who are the same height as me at six foot four in the, the heavyweight category or whatnot. But they're all torso, short little arms and short legs so that they can drop into that front squat, no problem, and throw that weight up overhead, no problem, right? And it doesn't mean that people who don't have the proportions that are conducive to that elite pursuit of the sport in in question can't do the exercise or can't get good at it. Just means that you have to know what it's imposing on your body compared to somebody else's and approach things with a little bit more of a discriminating or a discerning mind. And when you do that, Mm. you'll be able to not only perform, but also stay clear of injury. So a guy like me, yeah, I like to do the snatch. I like to do the clean and jerk and so on. They're fun lifts to do, but I'm not doing them for the same volume as a competitive lifter will. I'm not going to try to push my maxes all the time. I'm going to look at supplementing those patterns with other movements that are going to be more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're going to be servicing my body a little bit more than they put it at risk and so on. Mm. And um, yeah, the demands that, and I'm also going to be looking at things that I'm going to really, really require in order to do well at that. Like for example, ankle dorsiflexion is going to be huge for a guy like me in order to be able to drop down to a full squat, etc. So those are the types of uh, methods of thinking I think that should go behind it all. And it starts with just looking at your proportions and also looking how you, those proportions perform with standard movements and how they compare as far as getting um, getting the, the the technique to look as good as the elite level lifters who do it, yeah. do you find that there are common body types that are out there for let's just say like the clients that you're working with and people that you just see you know out in the gym? Um, are there any ones that kind of like fit into these? <laughs> I'm trying to fit this into a nice little box. You know how they do like the endomorphic, ectomorphic, which is you know, complete BS, obviously. But you know, is there certain body types that uh, that you see as common inside the gym? And what would the corresponding say prescription for them would be if you can actually add that in later as well? If there are, well, I, I, it's a, it's a hard question to answer because I really see a big spread. I see a spread of all kinds mm. of body types. And with the general population being the main clientele that I'm working with, I'm going to see even more of a spread. This is going to be the area of the industry, of the client base of the industry, that is going to have the greatest variety, right? If I said that I only worked with athletes, power sport athletes, typically like sprinters, mm. football players, and basketball players, then I probably see a lot more shorter torsos, longer extremities. You know, that's just it's mm. it's very conducive to very athletic explosive things most of the time right if i said that i only worked with power lifters and olympic lifters i might see the opposite in terms of uh, how long extremities are compared to how long torsos are let's say and and mm. i can go on and on like that but since i'm not specializing in certain sports or certain pursuits 
and I'm going with general population clients like Bob from accounting or Deborah from finance, those are going to show a whole spectrum in terms of, you know, people who've never lifted before, people who might have an athletic background, people who have only lifted, people who have played a bunch of different sports and now they've retired from sports and now they just are Bob from accounting and so on. Those are that's why there's going to be so much variety, variation from body type to body type. And um, you don't know really what to expect. So mm. in a way, yeah. and you've probably heard this before, people will say, well, you know, training athletes is the hardest thing to do, or requires the most brain power or whatever, whatever. And it's like, well, I mean, one could counter that by saying, you know, being able to choose the right approach for individuals and general population with all the stuff that they have going on it might be a little bit harder, <laughs> right? Because yeah, you have a yeah. different foundation you have a different baseline and a different set of expectations and a lot of other priorities and responsibilities that they have to manage at the same time. So, you know, and, and not to mention the major factor, which is usually age, right? And uh, mm. that plays huge into just what you prescribe, how you prescribe things and uh, how you coach them. Yeah, definitely. And uh, when it comes to say, you know, I, I don't want to call, you know, every single client that we say like gem pop them, you know, they're very special in their own little right, especially Bob from accounting. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but when it comes to them, they are dealing like when people are professionals at sports, they are focused on that sport. Most of them are just focused on that sport. Maybe they do a job, whatever it is, but say Bob from accounting, he has to focus on the stress that he has from his job. He has to focus on the, his family and those commitments. And he has to focus on the commitments to his health and he has to focus on the commitments to his actual job itself. So, you know, like it, it, I do find that a lot of times it's like these intangible things that you have to really watch out for when it comes to dealing with, uh, say a client that isn't, uh, coming from a professional sport. Now I want to veer this towards, uh, let's just say diet right now. Cause we've been talking a lot about exercise and, uh, and what was the thing that you said? Physi anthro anthropometry. Anthropometry. I gotta. I gotta remember that one. That was. Uh, I remember talking about that. We talked about this before we got in there. I'm like, okay, that I gotta look up this word and, and like actually study this right now because I am super stoked about it. <laughs> but when it comes to your diet, or when it comes to prescribing diets for clients, uh, again, what are some things that you're looking out for? Uh, and then what are some, what are some common practices that you prescribe for say like the average gem pop client? So I usually lead by saying, listen, I'm not a nutritionist. And for that reason, I don't actually create any sort of meal plans or anything like that. Pretty sure it's illegal to be honest with you if I don't have a yeah. credential to do that. And so I always stay away and I always outsource to, uh, some of my favorite people for nutrition coaching. And, uh, especially with online clients, I usually do it in tandem with that nutrition coach so that, uh, I'm handling the training piece and then that coach handling the nutrition side of things and it keeps things um it keeps me being honest as well because you know i'm not going to sit here and act like i have the most knowledge about those kinds of subjects compared to training content which is what i is what my thing is what i do right and so beyond general guidelines um i don't really get too deep into nutrition but the thing is is that the majority of clients who are struggling with those kinds of issues, who are struggling with, uh, you know, whether it's fat loss, whether it's building muscle, whatever the, the case is, and they're part of the general population, those general guidelines usually go a long way, right? And so, um, you know, when it comes to just simple things like uh, telling people about how much protein they should be taking in, um, how much, uh, what, what their, their view should be on carbohydrates, for example, good quality sources of carbs, um, and how to sort of... Uh, what things to eat when, like in terms of what timing to eat their foods, um, they can go a long way for a lot of people. Uh, things that will yeah. help with, um, well, I shouldn't even say nutritionally, but uh, recognizing that uh, a stress hormone cortisol is going to be a big part of whether or not they're having trouble losing body fat, for example. Uh, those kinds of things can go a long way to help those people. And finding a way to incorporate and encourage the most simple habit changes first and foremost. Okay, this month, I want you to ace two things. I want you to ace having, um, you know, 100 grams of protein in a day and ace having uh, two liters of water in a day. That's it. When you kill that, then we'll, we'll go further with that, right? Uh, I want you to ace making sure that you eat breakfast and a good nutritious breakfast first thing when you start. And then we're going to see if you can do that every single day for a month. And then we can talk, et cetera. And mm. you'd be surprised to see, and people would be surprised to see just how hard simple things like that can be for a lot of people, right? Um, you know, 
things like, okay, well, you know, having like junk food late at night usually isn't the greatest idea for people, right? And people will start, oh, well, it doesn't matter what time you eat this or it doesn't matter. Listen, most people will agree that if you eat garbage food right before you go to sleep, it's not probably the greatest idea when your goal is to be leaner or to be dropping weight or whatever it is, you know, and we don't need to tell Bob from accounting the deep science that refutes this. It's just a good habit to adopt to at least get into some kind of like a a regularity and some kind of a discipline where this is all concerned without starting to um, split hairs about the details and what the latest research says and whatnot. Let's let's talk about this. Uh, You mentioned something which is like eat a breakfast. Now, uh, I got into this with uh, someone on Twitter not a a while ago, and I had uh, just said one thing on Twitter, which is like, uh, yo, fasting isn't a magic bullet. Uh, it's not a magic bullet for fat loss and actually comes with its own with its own detriments, especially for high stressed individuals. And then he came on. He was like, how can you you know, you can't put in the straw man comment and like all this kind of stuff and whatever. And I'm just like and this guy was invested into fasting and keto because this is what he was basing his business off of as well. You know, what exactly are your thoughts when it comes to fasting, keto, carnivore, like the different the different types of things that people are applying to their bodies, the extremes of like these, uh, these diets. So I actually spent a long time doing the intermittent fasting thing myself. And so I've had my share of good results from it over the years uh, when I actually adhere to it. Um, And the thing about, I'll start with intermittent fasting because it's the thing that's closest to me. Um, The thing about it is that, and this sort of goes with all the other stuff too, is that it worked really well and it continues to work very, very well. If I want to stay uh, adhering to it again, it works really well with my schedule. That's it. It works beautifully with my schedule. And for that reason, I could do that without stopping if I really wanted to. I can start my day and have my 7 a.m., 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m. client and not even be thinking about food or having anything to eat. And then, you know, then I do a workout at 1030, let's say, and then I go until 1230. And then after the workout, I go home, get showered, get changed, and then I start making breakfast. It's 1.15, right? And so then I'm eating my eggs at like 1.30 and stuff. And yeah, I've started my intermittent fasting. Well, I've finished my intermittent fasting window and started eating. Stop eating by call it 8 o'clock in the evening, and then you repeat the cycle. And it works perfectly for somebody whose work is what it is for me, right? Now, if I started my days at 10 o'clock in the morning and I went until 6 o'clock p.m., guaranteed between the time I wake up and 10 o'clock, I'd probably want something to eat because I wouldn't be distracted, number one. I wouldn't be up as early, number two. I'd probably be sleeping for different hours of the night, all that stuff. So I think that with keto, with fasting, with all these different methods that are out there, I really think that a lot of it has to be contingent on whether or not it works for your schedule and current lifestyle. You don't have to make any drastic changes to be able to pull it off. And the second thing is, like I said, I could do intermittent fasting for years and years and years if I really wanted to because of that. And that should be a qualifying factor for something to uh, be to, to, to land for you. If you think that you can still use that method in a year from now, never having stopped, you know, because I'm sure that all of the above methods, I haven't tried any of the other things that you've, you've, you've mentioned here, but I'm sure that all of them can yield results if they're adhered to correctly. I'm sure that you can get, you know, more muscular or you can get leaner or whatever the goal is that would uh, be uh, allowing that sort of method, that sort of uh, diet method to enter. I'm sure that they all yield results for whatever those goals might be. But I don't know any details or enough details about them to know whether or not they're sustainable so that somebody can do it and not stop. And if they are, then I can't really see too many reasons that are just on the surface level that would deter me from telling someone, you know what, it's not bad to do, right? But, you know, it started when it starts getting into things that are maybe very exclusionary to very, very nutritious food groups, for example, mm-hmm. or uh, things that require drastic changes to your schedule, to your lifestyle in order for you to pull it off. You know, you go on a diet of severe caloric restriction, for example, or you're saying, you know what? Do what Beyonce did for the for the whatever it was, uh, what what it was the BET Awards, the Grammys, or something like that. And she said, or no, it was for for Coachella, I think. No sugar, yeah. no carbs, no this, no that. And she was like, well, she even said she was miserable and she was so hungry and stuff. But <laughs> it just goes to show that um, you know those things aren't sustainable. And when you take a drastic yeah. approach, well, guess what? Of course, you're going to see results, but that's not the way to do it long term. And people are so stuck in this way where it's like. You have to get the results 
all at once right now and they don't even care about what the the damage could be to your body or to your mental state or whatever and it's not the smartest thing for you to go about because you're not even going to remember what you felt like on this particular day or on this week or like back in 2022 if it's 2024 and you're heavier than you were before and you're more miserable than you were before and you have less results than you were going for before so that's what it should really be all about is like okay how can i use this for the rest of my adult life type of thing it that reminds me of um we'll use like fasting as an example where you know people are saying fasting works for me fasting works for me and then uh, I and then I'm always asking them like, okay, so why are you trying to lose the same 25 pounds over and over and over? You know, it, it's something's off, right? And uh, sometimes, like some of the examples are like, I, I have trouble with nighttime eating and like all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, you know, like breakfast can possibly like mitigate that, you know. And they're just so kind of like connected to a philosophy that it kind of stops them from thinking like this thing works, this thing works when. Obviously, if you're not getting results and you're not getting in the long term, it's it's not working. It's not sustainable. What would you say are the principles of sustainability, uh, say from like your aspect and, and just from a client's aspect? Principles of sustainability. Uh, in terms of what exactly do you mean? Um, I would say let's just let's actually like split it up between training and nutrition right now, like based on your experience. OK, so with yeah. uh, the for training, especially. I'd say that uh, one thing to make training sustainable would be, you know, one uh, somebody that I know actually is is kind of guilty of doing this a lot where it's a very, very all or none, you know, might fall mm -hmm. off for a while and, you know, get caught up with a lot of life stuff. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know what? I'm back and I'm in this every single day. I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to train at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. every <laughs> single day. And this is going to be it, you know, and I'm sort of there just like, okay, well, that's great. Mm -hmm. And I know you have experience training, but the sustainability of this, especially compared to where your life was compared to where it is now, the responsibilities that you have, plus the fact that you're just getting back into it after a hiatus, it's only bound to derail itself again if you take such an approach, right? So if you want sustainability, then you have to think about this from a longer term aspect and you have to think, okay, why don't I commit? What did I do incorrectly the last time I approached things like this? Well, I couldn't adhere to the amount of times that I wanted to work out. Let's start there. So why don't I try to ace doing three to four workouts per week? I like personally recommending to clients, pull the every other day rule. Simple. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to think about scheduling. You don't have to think about, just do every other day. If you start on Monday, then you train on Monday. Do not train on Tuesday. Then go to the gym on Wednesday. Take a day off on Thursday, and then that way you you guarantee yourself three or four workouts every single week. Simple, right? And they don't even have to think about anything other than remembering, okay, did I train yesterday? No, then I go in today. Yes, then I don't go in today, etc. And so um, that, that method right there seems to work pretty well, and that's something that I like to recommend. Even when I've slid myself and I have a period, period of time where I don't train much for a month or whatever it is, or I'm super busy or whatnot, I say, you know what? Let me just go in every other day. It makes it comfortable and I can do, I can pull that off. So the every other day rule and uh, it's just for training sustainability, it's something that a lot of people don't get um, overwhelmed by. They don't get daunted by it. And it's something they can usually adhere to and commit to. So that's, that's where I like to start with, uh, with training stuff. And then as far as what to do in the gym, um, I like really, really thinking of things from the ground up. So you know, body weight staples, basic movement patterns, total body workouts to start before we start getting into, okay, how heavy can you go or what strength training methods or even following a direct program even, you know, I do think that programs are a little bit overrated sometimes and people think that they have to have a certain structure in order for them to be getting any benefits out of training. And it's like, well, remember what we said earlier that a lot of clients don't really care about too many different details or fine details. Now, of course, most people are going to benefit if they've got goals from following some kind of a structure. But at the same time, a lot of times people are still going to get results from just regular exercise to start before we start streamlining things into, okay, now you're going to do this, this, and this, at this rate, at this, uh, whatever, whatever. It doesn't have to go there right away. It doesn't have to go there right away. And uh, just getting somebody moving, getting somebody to practice certain habits, getting somebody to get more mobile, getting somebody to uh, be exposed to lifting resistance training and so on on a regular basis first, it's a great place to begin. And it usually means they're going to get in a better athletic condition than they were before they started. Then we could talk about programming, streamlining things. But I think that in a way, 
clients kind of would do well to kind of earn the ability to do a program, right? And to do a serious program that is first, show me that consistency, show me that you can do this and show me that you, uh, that you're committed to it. So that would be mm-hmm. my answer for, that would be my answer for the, uh, for the training side. And I kind of mentioned the nutrition side of it already in the, in the earlier part of our conversation where I was saying, you know, master one or two habits at a time. You know, you do that water, you take in some more water, you start thinking about more nutritious carbohydrate choices versus processed garbage foods, for example. You know, um, you start thinking about, okay, what periods of time are going to be the smartest for me to eat? What periods of time might not be the smartest? How do I, uh, how do I think about, okay, do I have a protein shake or something like that after a workout, for example, maybe get into the habit of doing things like that. Let me, let me think about, okay, every time that I want a snack, I'm going to choose something a little bit more nutritious than before, okay? So instead of doing this kind of sugar in a chocolate bar, maybe I'll have this fruit salad instead, which is very sweet, tastes delicious. It just, you change your palate a little bit and you get uh, you get the benefits of that and you still feel satisfied, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the kinds of things that I would say in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, creating those standards and finding ways to sort of build on a sort of ground zero early approach to things. And it usually goes pretty well. Awesome. And you had just went through your own personal transformation as well. Uh, We talked about this uh, before. I hope we can talk about this uh, if it's cool with you. And what would you say was the the thing that spurred you to want to uh, lean out to drop some weight and to get your body, you know, let's just say back into shape. It was the fact that I had more time finally, and that was because the pandemic had just started and I still had access to a gym. And so I'm not going to sugarcoat it or, or lie about anything. Mm. That was the main thing that made it possible for me to really, really do it. Cause I was a guy who was training. I was still training all the time. I was still training, you know, mm. five days a week, whatever. And, uh, I trained hard. I trained well, I did a lot of, you know, body weight stuff ever since I got my knees done, which was back in 2017, I had a major shift away from lifting heavy, every single workout and doing only squat, deadlift, bench press. No, I do everything. And I, I had been doing everything, but See, I was in a place where nutritionally, first of all, and probably stress-wise as well in terms of that cortisol we're talking about, that those things were inhibiting my ability to, um, you know, be better uh, body composition-wise, right? And Mm -hmm. so I would have goals of, okay, I want to shed whatever, 15, 10, whatever it was. And, you know, you, I wouldn't really get there because, and it wasn't because of the training stuff. It was because of the fact that, you know, busyness, stress-wise, nutritionally, those three things, they were sort of hindering my progress. So um, having more time, getting more sleep, number one, uh, being able to sleep a full night and then wake up whenever I want. When the pandemic hit, you know, I didn't have to teach in school in person anymore. I didn't have to, uh, I didn't have to go in for a 6 a.m. client anymore for the time being. You know, all of that stuff went to the, like it went out the window for a while, for almost two years on and off. And so then I was able to, okay, you know what? I'm going to wake up whenever, 7.30, going to get to the gym for 9.30, turn on the lights in that gym. I train for as long as I want, take my time. Afterwards, now I can focus on eating clean. Don't have any stresses either. I'm going to eat clean. So I have my I have my eggs. I have some vegetables with it, whatever, and I have a good protein shake and so on, drink more water, and I just chill. And that was basically the, the mode of operation for a lot of that time. So it went from I started with like a 270 body weight or just shy of it. And I hit the lowest hit I hit was around 230, right? 228, 230, you know? And so it was like, okay. And that took a while, by the way. It didn't happen in six weeks, just so everybody's paying attention. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and so by the end of it, you know. Five minute abs. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it was over that year or so that I dropped about that much weight. It was like a 40 pound decrease. And uh, I also know that, and I knew that it's like, okay, so I'm hitting my bottom here. Like, you will be at a point where you start working again. You will be at a point where you get busy again or where this consistency or this commitment cannot be uh, maintained at 100% tilt all the time. You have to be ready for those kind of like, there will be some slippage. There will be some setback. There's going to be hiccups. How do you maintain and sustain this? You won't even be training this often as much or you won't even train. My thing was I won't train as long as I was training per workout. And that was the thing. I was doing two-hour workouts and stuff like that. I was like, you know what? Soon you're going to only have 90 minutes or 60 minutes to train. So like that's going to be less of your total weekly volume. Your training and your results are going to show that, right? So what will what will happen? Okay, I know you're going to gain a little bit back and so on. So 
Having said that, you know, right now I maintain around 240. That's about it. When I'm being good, I can dip underneath, underneath that again. But with all the other things considered, it's a net change of like 30 pounds, first of all. And second of all, with all these things considered where I'm very busy again with all these different things I'm working on, whether it's writing, whether it's teaching, whether it's speaking, whether it's traveling, whether it's um, training people in, uh, in person as well, the gym, you know, and waking up super early again. It's a good place to be. And, you know, I've been able to maintain that was back in 2020. So I've been able to maintain that net change of being less and uh, feeling better, feeling more athletic over uh, over the last couple of years, which is great going into uh, the summer of 20 or going to the fall, I guess, of 2022 now. So, uh, yeah, I think that it's a, a good place to be. And that's I'm, I'm pleased with the way that I decide to approach it and having to manage the mm-hmm. correct expectations about it as well, where it's like, OK, so you hit 229. Don't think that you're going to stay right here for the rest of your life. Like, no, like be realistic about it. Your circumstances influence a whole lot. Your practices influence a whole lot. What can you sustainably sort of aim for and sort of maintain so that it keeps things realistic? Yeah, and I find that uh, a lot of people freak out uh, when they start seeing the bounce back a little bit. When they drop down to a very low weight, they start seeing a little bit of a bounce back. When that's kind of like uh, just a normal part of the process that we should all accept. I mean, when you get down to your lowest weight, it doesn't mean that you're going to keep yourself there. It means that, uh, you know, like motivations are going to change. Things are going to change in your life. Uh, Your kind of like disciplines towards what you were doing are going to, you know, evolve over time. And it's okay to kind of like gain a little bit of weight back as long as you're, you know, lower than where you were before. So I'm going to take the last part of this uh, interview, which I'm entirely enjoying and just like geeking out on. And uh, we do this uh, thing called, it's just like rapid fire questions. And I'm just going to ask you uh, a question. You, you basically just give an answer and then you uh, have like a, maybe like a two or three sentence explanation as to like why you answer this one. So, uh, are you ready? Yep. We're going to, we're going to get started on this. All right, let's do it. What are you, what are your thoughts on biohacking? Biohacking? I don't know much about it at all. So my okay. thoughts are minimal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no thoughts, no opinions whatsoever. Sorry. I like that. Um, what does writing mean to you? Uh, it's a lot of cre- it's it's a means for credibility. If you ask me, it's a, my goal has always been toward uh, getting respect in the industry from my peers first and foremost, and then of course by default and by extension from the general public. And so I think that writing has uh, been a very important part of that for me. And I think that it's a way and an opportunity to to display number one expertise, but to earn respect. And um, as far as uh, writing goes, I look forward to being able to write for a lot of places that a lot of other professionals who might be purists might look down their nose at and say it's too fluffy or I wouldn't ever be seen in a publication like this. Well, great. An opportunity for somebody who's got good expertise to raise the standard of that magazine so it doesn't have that identity anymore. Mm. Article that you're most proud of writing? Huh. Probably the article about uh, my niece, I would say. Uh, I wrote that in T Nation, talked about uh, it was called From Wheelchair to Wheels. And uh, I talked Ooh. about uh, the, the process from uh, having that bilateral patellar tendon rupture to being able to uh, squat a lot of weight or dunk a basketball again or sprint fast again. Yeah. One of the things I've, say, I've seen uh, in one of your videos was you dunking a basketball and I just got like super jelly. You know, yeah. I was just like, I, I was just like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to dunk a basketball too, but I don't think that's uh, in my cards anymore. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, if... One article that would make people understand Lee Boyce a lot more that you've written. I wrote an would article. Would be the niece one, or I wrote an article oh, on my sorry. blog called. Uh, it was on my blog in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. It was called "The Limits of Lee Boyce," and it was just I wrote it for my mm-hmm. own page, and uh, it just talked about basically who I am and what I'm all about in this industry, not by way of accomplishments or anything like that, but based on personal motivations, personal um, like what I would do, what I wouldn't do. Uh, why I don't call myself an influencer, all that kind of stuff. Just uh, a real look into my mind and how I like to approach my career. Okay, love that. Uh, what does P mean? Not answering that. You know why? Because <laughs> everyone asks that question. I've, I've, I've decided to turn that into a, a, a thing of interpretation. It has a meaning. I love it. It has a meaning, but it does. it has a meaning and it has no meaning at the same time. <laughs> 
And so almost mm. every time that I put that down on like my Instagram or whatever, it always has someone in the comments go, what does that mean? What does it mean? I just want to, <laughs> I just want to hear you say it. I just want to hear you say it live. So I know what it means. Does it stand for something? And so people go crazy. And you know what? The mystique of it has just made me start like it's, it's, it has me preening at the screen. And so I just, I just leave it. I just leave it. So I'm going to do it every day. <laughs> I love that. It's literally a, it's kind of like a roar shark test, a roar shark test on someone's kind of perception of the world a little bit. It's like someone can be like, uh, this is a positive thing or someone can look at it and be like, oh, he's talking shit you oh, know, or whatever it is. Believe it's like, me, believe me. When uh, actually, I think just this week, somebody was like, stop saying, like someone commented and was like, stop <laughs> saying that. Oh my, it's so, I'm so, why do you have to always keep on saying that? Give it up, give it a rest, you know? And so some people are like, it seems like they're offended by this word that very well could be completely made up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. The way I see, like, so if you, if you're listening to this, definitely follow Lee on Instagram. It's uh it's Lee Boyce, right? Lee Boyce training. Lee Boyce, uh, coach Lee Boyce is for Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So okay. that's, uh, that's the okay. handle. Coach Lee Boyce. And then, uh, at the end of, <laughs> at the end of each post that he does, it's like, he's, he says, Puh. and then the, the way I perceive it is like, it is kind of like a stamp, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, uh, it's like, it's kind of, I don't know how it's, it's almost like inexplainable from, from a word standpoint. It's just like talking my shit. That's what I mean. And then, you know, whatever, go, go, go deal with it kind of thing. I love it. <laughs> uh, I love it. And it's, it's actually very like, it's like your brand right now. It's like very on brand. And I'm, I'm very excited to see where you take that. <laughs> All right. So what has fitness done for your life? Um, it's done a lot because I think that without having experience, cause I'll, I'll include being an athlete when I was younger as, as part of fitness too, right? Because there's training involved with that. And so it's done a lot because like I said at the beginning, it, it really planted the seed toward wanting to work with people to pursue similar goals, whether they are athletic goals in terms of sport related or whether they're just like, you know, get in shape goals. And, um, it, it's been instrumental for me to have that baseline or to have that background so that I've lived that kind of life myself uh, in order to, to know. And it's also been able to, uh, here's a fun fact is that when I was younger, um, when I was still in university or maybe just before university, I wanted to be a chiropractor. That's one thing that I wanted to do. Mm. And um, then, and there's no shade on Cairo or anything like that. I use them all the time. I'm using one. I'm going to one right after this, this podcast actually. Yeah. But um, you know, the thing is, is that like, personally, I was more, I was more leaning toward working with healthy, uninjured people than I wanted to work with patients on a table who were injured and coming to you for that kind of treatment in, in a clinical setting. And that was the one thing that really led me toward, no, I, I want to coach, I want to train people in that regard instead. And so, um, yeah, it was very instrumental because that athletic background that I had and that personal fitness background that I had as well, it, uh, it helped me make up my mind in, in terms of choosing what I wanted to do. Awesome. Love it. Um, I, I got into fitness because I, I used to be a fat guy, a uh, fat kid. And then I was just like, so embarrassed about it. So that's, that's the whole reason I got into the gym and started taking care of my body. Um, okay. Favorite exercise of all time. That's really hard to, because the, the truth is yeah. the answer has kind of changed over time too. Um, I what is it right now? My, my first answer ever would have been the clean. Uh, I really like the mm. clean because of just how much it does and also how cool it looks too. You know, just listen, doing sets of hang cleans. You can't really look more bad than that. You know? <laughs> um, so I, I might even still say the clean. I like front squats mm. a lot as well. Um, but uh it's a tough one. I, you know what? I'm still going to stick with the clean. I really like that movement. I really like the hang clean yeah. exercise. It's like choosing your children <laughs> a little bit, you know, like which one's my favorite. Uh, awesome. And uh, when it's all said and done, what type of impact would you want to make on the fitness industry? Um, one that, uh, you know, I really haven't actually thought about that because I've been so caught up in the process. But uh, mm. one that separates me from this <laughs> – how do I put this without sounding any sort of way? Uh, one that separates me from what is often seen in this particular generation of uh, the, the world of online stuff, which is mm. this is an Instagram coach. Oh, this guy is on mm. Instagram. So it's funny because it's funny you ask this question because 
a lot of times people will like I, I do get stopped a fair amount these days compared to before. And I think it's because of the nature of the platforms that are existing these days. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody will say, hey, you know, like I know who you are. I recognize your face or they see me in the gym and they say, hey, you know, I really like your content on Instagram, you know. And I'm sort of there like thinking to myself, well, that's really nice that this person realized who I was and they came and stopped me, introduced themselves. But it seems like they're quantifying everything that I've got or what I'm worth or who I am to the industry through Instagram, you know, because that's the first thing they said. And maybe that's all they know. And so it kind of makes me think that, okay, well, I don't want to be just known or remembered or whatever as an Instagram coach or one of those kinds of, you know, Instagram only type of thing where they're doing a daily post and that's basically it. No, no, I want it to be more, I don't know, for lack of a better term, academic, a little bit more stuff that's like, you know, tangible, written work Mm -hmm. and articles, stuff in magazines and print, stuff in different scholarly journals and so on, like all that other stuff that I do and have done. My lectures, my speaking stuff, my teaching stuff, whatever it is, like those are the things that I want people to remember first and before this little hobby that is Instagram where you're doing a daily post to help the public out, right? And so, yeah, yeah, like I know that Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and the three social media things that I've got anyway are huge vehicles towards making your business grow, um, helping your business out, et cetera, and uh, creating a nice professional appearance on on uh, on your internet on the on the internet. But you know, there's going to be a day where I don't have Instagram or any social media because I'm just done with it, you know. And then yeah. I'll just have a website and I'll have my stuff that I still get published in and all that stuff, and I'm going to work that way. I'm I'm, I'm sure of it. And so that's, I like that. And it, it's like it means to end a little bit. Yeah. Right. You know, and so from that yeah. standpoint, I, I just want to make sure that that other stuff is still sort of head and shoulders above in its in its recognition or prominence compared to what I do on social media with with my stuff. And there's no shade to anybody awesome. who does rely on social media mainly as their thing. But uh, it's just I don't want that to only be my my one trick, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, and I do find that um, when the onus is like so much put on growing on social media, I do find it's kind of like porn in a sense for creators uh, in the sense where they have to do more crazier shit over and over. Like it, it gets just more crazier over time in order to get views, in order to get likes, in order to get engagement. So they, you know how porn, like you watch it enough times, it's just... You know, if you're addicted to it, you just need more like crazier forms of like pornography. I feel like these creators who create these like uh, Instagram stuffs or or just so seeped in social media and aren't necessarily like coaching and trying to get as much engagement as possible. They just create more crazier shit and more out there shit. So so, just so they can actually get more attention from other people. And that's one reason why it's a reason why I like the slow trickle effect in terms of building an audience where that's concerned too. I've seen people, you know, for lack of a better term, come up and pass me on social media as far as, you know, how big their audience is and so on. And, you know, I think about it. It's like, I've been on social media since 2019, give or take, you know, and let me check right now for Instagram, 41.1 thousand people are on here. Right now I've seen people who've come up way after and they've gotten 50,000 before I even hit 35,000 or whatever. And now they've got a hundred thousand. And it's like the, 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 the methods that are used in order to do that, they might be legit. They might be using and leveraging the algorithms. They might be using and leveraging, you know, what kinds of posts to post the timing of the posts and all those things. I don't think about that stuff. I just, I don't think about that stuff. And it doesn't like, it doesn't mean I don't respect those approaches. It just means that like, I am trying to go as rawly organic as possible with this. And the methods that I'm using, they're not anything that's brand new and crazy cutting edge. Like I'm not doing five things at the same time for views and in my videos and whatnot. I don't, I don't do that. You know, I barely even have an editing thing for my videos, to be honest with you. So I, I, I'm cool with 40, 41,000 is a crazy number in my opinion. And like, if I can just keep it growing at that kind of rate where it's just slow trickle engagement, you know, it's kind of real and so on. And I'm sticking to my guns as well, then I'm happy to do that. So, you know, if, if it means a smaller audience than the, the most popular person out there, I'll take it. Well, it's, there's a definite big difference between the size of an audience and the actual people who consume your content and engage with you. Uh, it's kind of like the 1,000 true fans uh, concept by Kevin Kelly. 
And, uh, and yeah, man, it's, it's like, stick with your guns, stick with your integrity. And that's the way to go every single day, every single time. Yep. Um, I enjoy your content a lot. I'm on there. I'm commenting, uh, quite a bit. And, uh, it's because, uh, it's because I love the stuff that you put out. So if you are listening to this and, uh, you want to follow Lee, go to coach Lee Boyce. Is there anywhere else uh, that we should be sending people right now? So just my website, which has an archive of basically everything that I've write, uh, written and also my blog, which is, uh, contained on my website, obviously. And it has a lot of, uh, not training related content, but more so the fitness as a whole from a cultural, from a sociocultural perspective, I would say. There are more editorial mm-hmm. pieces on there in the blog section of my website. And my website mm-hmm. URL is leeboyce.com, nice and easy. So uh, people can find all my stuff there, all the articles for different publications and magazines, plus my blog is there as well, which is just a little bit of a left turn away from direct fitness and training content. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I feel like the blog is a little bit more of a personal look inside your brain and your mind um, and who you are as a person. Uh, so if you are watching this, listening to this, definitely go to Lee's blog and uh, and check out his amazing articles and his amazing writing style as well as very raw, uh, very personal. Um, and Lee, just want to say thanks again for coming on this interview. Uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate uh, the relationship that we've uh, created over the past few months. Uh, always uh, appreciate the conversations that we have at the gym. Um, and yeah, man, uh, just appreciate you as a person. Thanks a lot, man. I was really glad to do yeah. this. And uh, I'm glad that we met a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Super stoked. And uh, and yeah, man. So everyone, follow Lee at uh, whatever social media platforms that we just talked about. And, uh, and that's about it. Thanks for uh, coming on, brother. No problem, man. again for listening to the dango show we have some amazing episodes coming your way so make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already if you're already subscribed and today's episode hit home for you please share this episode with someone that you know who'd benefit from listening take care and see you every week on your favorite podcasting app